Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 39. The dead detective, grinning in the moonlight, a pair of silvery quarters gleaming in the sockets once occupied by his eyes. This was the image that plied the turbulent waters of Junior Kane's imagination when he sailed out the driver's door and came around to face the Studebaker, his heart dropping like an anchor. His dry tongue, his parched mouth, his desiccated throat fell packed full of sand, and his voice lay buried alive down there. Even when he saw no cop cadaver, no ghoulish grin, no two-bit eyes, Junior was not immediately relieved. Warily, he circled the car, expecting to find the detective crouching and poised to spring. Nothing. The dome light was on in the car, because the driver's door was standing open. He didn't want to lean inside and peer over the front seat. He had no weapon. He would be unbalanced, vulnerable. Still cautious, Junior approached the back door, the window. Vanadium's body lay on the car floor, wrapped in a tumbled blanket. He had not heard the lawman rising up with malevolent intent as he imagined. The body had simply rolled off the back seat onto the floor during the two-sharp 180-degree turn. Briefly, Junior felt humiliated. He wanted to drag the detective out of the car and stomp on his smug, dead face. That would not be a productive use of his time. Satisfying, but not prudent. Zed tells us that time is the most precious thing we have because we're born with so little of it. Junior got in the car once more, slammed the door, and said, Pan face, double chin, half ball, puke collecting creep. Surprisingly, he received a lot of gratification from voicing this insult, even though Vanadium was too dead to hear it. Fat neck, splay nose, jug eared, eight brow, birthmarked freak. This was better than taking slow, deep breaths. Periodically, on the way to Vanadium's house, Junior spat out a string of insults punctuated by obscenities. He had time to think of quite a few, because he drove five miles per hour below the posted speed limit. He couldn't risk being stopped for a traffic violation with Thomas Vanadium, the human stump, was dead and bundled in the back. During the past week, Junior had undertaken quiet background research on the prestidigitator with a badge. The cop was unmarried. He lived alone, so this bold visit entailed no risk. Junior parked in a two-car garage. No vehicle occupied the second space. On one wall hung an impressive array of gardening tools. In the corner was a potting bench. In a cabinet above the bench, Junior found a pair of clean, cotton gardening gloves. He tried them on, and they fit well enough. He had difficulty picturing the detective puttering in the garden on weekends, unless there were bodies buried under the roses. With the detective's key, he let himself into the house. While Junior had been hospitalized, Vanadium had searched his place, with or without a warrant. Turnabout was satisfying. Vanadium clearly spent a lot of time in the kitchen. It was the only room in the house that felt comfortable and lived in. Lots of culinary gadgets, appliances, pots and pans hanging from a ceiling rack, a basket of onions, another of potatoes, a group in the bottles with colorful labels proved to be a collection of olive oils. The detective fancied himself a cook. Other rooms were furnished as barely as those in a monastery. Indeed, the dining room contained nothing whatsoever. A sofa and one armchair provided the seating in the living room. No coffee table. A small table beside the chair. A wall unit held a fine stereo system and a few hundred record albums. Junior examined the music collection. The policeman's taste ran to big band music and vocalists from the swing era. Evidently, Either Frank Sinatra was an enthusiast that Victoria and the detective shared, or the nurse purchased some of the crooner's records expressly for their dinner engagement. This was not the time to ponder the nature of the relationship between the treacherous Miss Bressler and Vanadium. Junior had a bloody trail to cover, and precious time was ticking away. Besides, the possibilities repulsed him. The very thought of a splendid-looking woman like Victoria submitting to a grotesque like Vanadium would have withered his soul if he had possessed a soul. The study was the size of a bathroom. The cramped space barely allowed for a battered pine desk, a chair, and one filing cabinet. The unmatched suite of bedroom furniture, cheap and scarred, might have been purchased at a thrift shop. A double bed and one nightstand. A small dresser. 
As was true of the entire house, the bedroom was immaculate. The wood floor gleamed as though polished by hand. A simple white Chanel spread conformed to the bed as smoothly and tautly as a top blanket tucked around a soldier's barracks bunk. Knickknacks and mementos were not to be found anywhere in the house. And until now, Junior had seen nothing hanging on the barren walls except the calendar in the kitchen. A cast bronze figure, fixed to lacquer walnut and wanted raw dogwood, suffered above the bed. This crucifix, contrasting starkly with the white walls, reinforced the impression of monastic economy. In Junior's estimation, this was not the way that a normal person lived. This was the home of a deranged loner, a dangerously obsessive man. Having been an object of Thomas Vanadium's fixation, Junior felt fortunate to have survived. He shuddered. In the closet, a limited wardrobe did not fully occupy available rod space. On the floor, shoes were neatly arranged toe-to-heel. The upper shelf of the closet held boxes and two inexpensive suitcases, pressboard, laminated with green vinyl. He took down the suitcases and put them on the bed. Vanadium owned so few clothes that the two bags had sufficient capacity to accommodate half the contents of the closet and dresser. Junior tossed garments on the floor and across the bed to create the impression that the detective had packed with haste. After being imprudent enough to blast Victoria Bressler five times with a service revolver, perhaps in a jealous rage, or perhaps he had gone nuts, Vanadium would have been frantic to flee justice. From the bathroom, Junior gathered an electric razor and toiletries. He added these to the suitcases. After carrying the two pieces of luggage to the car in the garage, he returned to the study. He sat at the desk and examined the contents of the drawers, then turned to the file cabinet. He wasn't entirely sure what he hoped to find. Perhaps an envelope or a cash box with folding money, which a fleeing murderer would surely pause to take with him. Suspicions might be raised if he left it behind. Perhaps a savings account passbook. In the first drawer, he discovered an address book. Logically, Vanadian would have taken it with him, even if on the limb from a murder rap, so Junior tucked it in his jacket pocket. When his search of the desk drawers was only half completed, the telephone rang. Not the usual strident bell, but a modulated electric brrrr. He had no intention of answering it. The second ring was followed by a click. Then a familiar droning voice said, Hello, I'm Thomas Vanadium. Like a spring-loaded novelty snake erupting from a can, Junior exploded up from the chair, nearly knocking it over. But I am not here right now. Swinging towards the open door, he saw that the dead detective was true to his word. He wasn't there. The voice continued, issuing from a device that stood on the desk beside the phone. Please don't hang up. This is a telephone answering machine. Leave a message after you hear the tone, and I'll return your call later. The word antiphone was imprinted on the black plastic casing of the machine. Junior had heard of this invention, but until now he had never seen one. He supposed that an obsessive like Vanadium might go to any lengths, including this exotic technology, to avoid missing an important call. The tone sounded, as promised, and a man's voice spoke from the box. It's Max. You're psychic. I found the hospital here. Poor kid had a cerebral hemorrhage, arising from a hypertensive crisis caused by... Eclampsia, I think it is. Baby survived. Call me, huh? Max hung up. The antiphone made a series of small robot mouse noises and then fell silent. Amazing. Junior was tempted to experiment with the controls. Maybe other messages were recorded on the machine. Listening to them would be delicious even if every one of them turned out to be as meaningless to him as Max's, a little like browsing through a stranger's diary. Finding nothing more of interest in the study, he considered searching the rest of the house. The night was in flight, however, and he had a lot to do before it swooped straight into morning. Leave the lamps burning, the door unlocked. A murderer, frantic to vanish while the victim remained undiscovered, wouldn't be worried about the cost of electricity or protecting against burglary. Junior drove boldly away. Zed counseled boldness. Because he kept imagining the stealthy sounds of a dead cop rising in vengeance behind him, Junior switched on the radio. He tuned in a station featuring a top 40 countdown. The DJ announced song number four for the week, The Beatles' She's a Woman. The Fab Four filled the Studebaker with music. 
Everyone thought the mop tops were the coolest thing ever. Ever. But the junior, their music was just alright. He wasn't started to sing along, and he didn't find their stuff particularly danceable. He was a patriotic guy, and he preferred American rock to the British brand. He had nothing against the English. No prejudices against people of any nationality. Nevertheless, he believed that the American Top 40 ought to feature American music exclusively. Crossing Spruce Hills with John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Dad Thomas, Junior headed back towards Victoria's place, where Sinatra was no longer singing. Number three on the charts was Mr. Lonely by Bobby Vinton, an American talent from Cannesburg, Pennsylvania. Junior sang along. He cruised past the Bristol residence without slowing. By this time, Vinton had finished, commercials had ran, and the number two song had started, Come See About Me by The Supremes. More good American music. The Supremes were Negroes, sure, but Junior was not a bigot. Indeed, he had once made passionate love to a Negro girl. Harmonizing with Diana Ross, Mary Wilson, and Florence Ballard, he drove to the granite quarry three miles beyond the town limits. A new quarry, operated by the same company, lay a mile farther north. This was the old one, abandoned after decades of cutting. Years ago, a stream had been diverted to fill the vast excavation. Stock fish were added, mostly trout and bass. As a recreational site, Quarry Lake could be judged only a partial success. During the mining operation, trees were cleared well back from the edge of the dig, so that much of the shore would be unshaded on a hot summer day. And along half the strand, signs were posted warning ungraded shore, immediate deep water. In places where lake met land, the bottom lay over a hundred feet below. The Beatles began singing the number one song, I Feel Fine, as Junior turned off the county highway and followed the lake road northeast around the oil black water. They had two titles in the American Top 5. In disgust, he switched off the radio. The previous April, the lads from Liverpool had claimed all five of the Top 5. Real Americans, like the Beach Boys in the Four Seasons, were forced to settle for lower numbers. It made you wonder who really won the Revolutionary War. No one in junior circles seemed to care about the crisis in American music. He supposed he had a greater awareness of injustice than did most people. On this chilly January night, no campers or fishermen estate claim along the lake. Because the trees were far back enough to be lost in the night, the immediate shore and pulled blackness that had encircled appeared as desolate as any landscape on a world without an atmosphere. Too far from Spruce Hills to be a popular makeout spot for teenagers, Quarry Lake was a turnoff for young lovers also because it had a reputation as haunted territory. Over five decades, four quarry workers had died in mining accidents. County lore included stories of ghosts roaming the depths of the excavation before it was flooded, and subsequently the shoreline after the lake was filled. Junior intended to add one stocky ghost to the party. Perhaps on a summer night in years to come, at the edge of the light fall from his Coleman lantern, a fisherman will see a semi-transparent vanadium providing entertainment with an ethereal quarter. At a point where deep water met the shoreline, Junior drove off the road and onto the strand. He parked 20 feet from the water, facing the lake, and switched off the headlights and the engine. Leaning across the front seat, he lowered the passenger's window six inches. Then he lowered the driver's side window at equal distance. He wiped the steering wheel and every surface that he might have touched during the drive from Victoria's to the detective's place, where he had acquired the gardening gloves that he still wore. He got out of the car and, with the door open, wiped the exterior handle. He doubted the Studebaker would ever be found, but successful men were, without exception, those who paid attention to detail. For a while, he stood beside the sedan, letting his eyes adapt to the gloom. The night was holding its breath again, the previous breeze now pent up in the breast of darkness. Having risen higher in the sky during the past couple hours, the gold coin moon reminted itself as silver, and in the black lake, its reflection rolled across the knuckles of the quiet wavelets. Convinced he was alone and unobserved, Junior leaned into the car and shifted it out of park. He released the handbrake. The strand was inclined towards the lake. He closed the door and got out of the way as the Studebaker rolled forward, gathering speed. With remarkably little splash, the sedan eased into the water. Briefly it floated, bobbling near shore, tipped forward by the weight of the engine. 
As a lake flooded in through a floor vent, the vehicle settled steadily, then sank rapidly when water reached the two partially open windows. This Detroit-built gondola would swiftly navigate the sticks without a black rub gondolier to pull it onward. The moment that the roof of the car vanished beneath the water, Junior hurried away, retracing on foot the route that he had driven. He didn't have to go all the way back to Vanadium's place, only to the dark house where he left Victoria Bressler. He had a date with a dead woman. Chapter 40 Not in the mood to garden, but wearing the proper gloves, Junior clicked on the foyer light, the hall light, the kitchen light, and stepped around the club-smothered shot nurse to the range, where he switched on the right oven, in which an unfinished pot roast was cooling, and the left oven, in which the dinner plates waited to be warmed. He cranked up a flame again under a pot of water that had been boiling earlier, and glanced hungrily at the uncooked pasta that Victoria weighed and set aside. If the aftermath of his encounter with Vanadium had not been so messy, Junior might have paused for dinner before wrapping up his work here. The walk back from Quarry Lake had taken almost two hours, in part because he had ducked out of sight in the trees and brush every time he heard traffic approaching. He was famished. Regardless of how well prepared the food, however, ambiance was a significant factor in the enjoyment of any meal, and bloodstained decor was not, in his view, conducive to fine dining. Earlier, he had set an open fifth of vodka on the table, in front of Victoria. The nurse, no longer in the chair, sprawled on the floor as if she had emptied another bottle before this one. Junior poured half the vodka over the corpse, splashed some more around other parts of the kitchen, and spilled the last on the cooktop, where it trickled towards the active burner. This was not an ideal accelerant, not as effective as gasoline, but by the time he threw a bottle aside, the spirits found the flame. Blue fire flashed across the top of the range and followed drips down the baked enamel front to the floor. Blue flared to yellow, and the yellow darkened when the blaze found the cadaver. Playing with fire was fun when you didn't have to attempt to conceal the fact that it was arson. Atop the dead woman, Vanadium's leather ID holder ignited. The identification card would burn, but the badge was not likely to melt. The police would also identify the revolver. From the floor, Junior snatched up the bottle of wine that had twice failed to shatter, his lucky Merlot. He backed towards the hall door, watching as the fire spread. After lingering until certain that the house would soon be a seething pyre, he finally sprinted along the hall to the front door. Under a declining moon, he fled discreetly three blocks to a suburban, parked on a parallel street. He encountered no traffic and on the way, he stripped off the gardening gloves and discarded them in a dumpster at a house undergoing remodeling. Not once did he look back to see if the fire had grown visible as a glow against the night sky. The events of Victoria's were part of the past. He was finished with all that. Junior was a forward-thinking, future-oriented man. Halfway home, he heard sirens and saw the beacons of approaching emergency vehicles. He pulled the Suburban to the side of the road and watched as two fire trucks pass followed by an ambulance. He felt remarkably well when he arrived home, calm, proud of his quick thinking and stalwart action, pleasantly tired. He hadn't chosen to kill again. This obligation had been thrust on him by fate. Yet he had proven that the boldness he had shown on the fire tower, rather than being a transient strength, was a deeply rooted quality. Although he harbored no fear of coming under suspicion for the murder of Victoria Bressler, he intended to leave Spruce Hills this very night. No future existed for him in such a sleepy backwater. A wider world awaited, and he had earned the right to enjoy all that it could offer him. He placed a phone call to Caitlin Hackachak, his trollist and avaracious sister-in-law, asking her to dispose of Naomi's things, their furniture, and whatever of his own possessions he chose to leave behind. Although she had been rewarded a quarter of a million bucks in the family settlement with the state and county, Caitlin would be at the house by Don's first light if she thought she might make ten bucks from liquidating its contents. Junior intended to pack only a single bag, leaving most of his clothes behind. He could afford a fine new wardrobe. In the bedroom, as he opened up a suitcase on the bed, he saw the quarter, shiny, heads up, on the nightstand. If Junior were weak-minded enough to succumb to madness, this was a moment where he would have fallen into an abyss of insanity. He heard an internal crackling, 
felt a terrible splintering in his mind, but he held himself together with sheer willpower, remembering to breathe slowly and deeply. He summoned enough courage to approach the nightstand. His hand trembled. He half expected the quarter to be illusory, to disappear between his pinching fingers, but it was real. When he held fast to his sanity, common sense eventually told him that the coin must have been left much earlier in the night, soon after he had set off for Victoria's house. In fact, in spite of the new locks, Vanadium must have stopped here on his way to see Victoria, unaware that he would meet his death in her kitchen and at the hands of the very man he was tormenting. Junior's fear gave way to an appreciation for the irony in this situation. Gradually, he regained the ability to smile, tossed the coin in the air, caught it, and dropped it in his pocket. Just as the smile occurred to completion, however, an awful thing happened. The humiliation began with a loud gurgle in his gut. Since dealing with Victoria and the detective, Junior had taken pride in the fact that he had keeping his equanimity and, more important, his lunch. No acute nervous amesis, as he had suffered following poor Naomi's death. Indeed, he had an appetite. Now, trouble. Different from what he experienced before, but just as powerful and terrifying. He didn't need to regurgitate, but he desperately needed to evacuate. His exceptional sensitivity remained a curse. He had been more profoundly affected by Victoria and Vanadium's tragic deaths than he had realized. Wrenched he was. With a cry of alarm, he bolted to the bathroom and made it with not a second to spare. He seemed to be on the throne long enough to witness the rise and fall of an empire. Later, weak and shaken, as he was packing a suitcase, the urge overcame him again. He was astonished to discover that anything could be left in his intestinal tract. He kept a few paperbacks to Caesar Zed's work in the bathroom, so the time spent on the John wouldn't be wasted. Some of his deepest insights into the human condition and his best ideas for self-improvement had come in this place, where Zed's luminous words seemed to shine a brighter light into his mind upon rereading. On this occasion, however, he couldn't have focused on the book even if he had the strength to hold it. The fierce paroxysms that clenched his guts also destroyed his ability to concentrate. By the time he had put his suitcase and three boxes of books, the collected works of Zed and selections from the Book of the Month Club, in the Suburban, Junior had rushed twice more to the bathroom. His legs were shaky, and he felt hollow, frail, as if he had lost more than was apparent, as if the essential substance of himself was gone. The word diarrhea was inadequate to describe this affliction. In spite of the books he had read to improve his vocabulary, Junior could not think of any word sufficiently descriptive and powerful enough to convey his misery and the hideousness of his ordeal. Panic set in when he began to wonder if these intestinal spasms were going to prevent him from leaving Spruce Hills. In fact, what if they required hospitalization? A pathologically suspicious cop, aware of Junior's acute amesis following Naomi's death, might imagine a connection between this epic bout of diarrhea and Victoria's murder and Vanadium's disappearance. Here was an avenue of speculation that he did not want to encourage. He must get out of town while he still could. His very freedom and happiness depended on his speedy departure. During the past 10 days, he had proved that he was clever, bold, with exceptional inner resources. He needed to tap his deep well of strength and resolve now, more than ever. He had been through far too much, accomplished too much, to be brought down by mere biology. Aware of the dangers of dehydration, and put two half-gallon containers of Gatorade in the Suburban. Sweaty, chilled, trembling, weak-kneed, watery-eyed with self-pity, Junior spread a plastic garbage bag on the driver's seat. He got in the Suburban, twisted the key in the ignition, and groaned as the engine vibrations threatened to undo him. With only a faint twinge of sentimental longing, he drove away from the house that had been his and Naomi's love nest for 14 blissful months. He clenched the steering wheel tightly with both hands, clenched his teeth so fiercely that his jaw muscles bulged and twitched, and clenched his mind around a stubborn determination to get control of himself. Slow, deep breaths. Positive thoughts. The diarrhea was over. Finished. Part of the past. Long ago, he had learned never to dwell on the past, never to be overly concerned about the worries of the present, but to be focused entirely on the future. He was a man of the future. 
As he raced into the future, the past caught up with him in the form of intestinal spasms, and by the time he had driven only three miles, whimpering like a sick dog, he made an emergency stop at a service station to use the restroom. Thereafter, Junior managed to drive four miles before he was forced to pull off the road at another service station, after which he felt that his ordeal might be over. But less than ten minutes later, he settled for more rustic facilities in a clump of bushes alongside the highway, where his cries of anguish frightened small animals in a squeaking flight. Finally, only 30 miles south of Spruce Hills, he reluctantly acknowledged the deep, slow breathing, positive thoughts, high self-esteem, and firm resolve weren't enough to subdue his treacherous bowels. He needed to find lodging for the night. He didn't care about a swimming pool or a king-sized bed or a free continental breakfast. The only amenity that mattered was indoor plumbing. The seedy motel was called Sleepy Time Inn, but the grizzled, squint-eyed, sharp-faced night clerk must not have been the owner because he wasn't the type to have dreamed up cute spellings for the sign out front. Judging by his appearance and attitude, he was a former Nazi death camp commandant who had fled Brazil one step ahead of the Israeli Secret Service and was now hiding out in Oregon. Racked by cramps and too weak to carry his luggage, Junior left his suitcase in the Suburban. He brought only the bottles of Gatorade into his room. The night which followed might as well have been a night in hell, though a hell in which Satan provided an electrolytically balanced beverage. Chapter 41 Monday morning, January 17th, Agnes's lawyer, Vinnie Lincoln, came to the house with Joey's will and other papers requiring attention. Round a face and round a body, Vinnie didn't walk like other men. He seemed to bounce lightly along, as if inflated with a mixture of gases that included enough helium to make him buoyant, though not so much that he was in danger of sailing up and away like a birthday balloon. His smooth cheeks and merry eyes left a boyish impression, but he was a good attorney and shrewd. How's Jacob? Vinnie asked, hesitating at the open front door. He's not here, Agnes said. That's exactly how I hoped he would be. Relieved, he followed Agnes to the living room. Listen, Aggie, you know, I don't have anything against Jacob, but... Good heavens, Vinny, I know that, she assured him as she lifted Barty, hardly bigger than a bag of sugar from the bassinet. She settled with the baby into a rocking chair. It's just... The last time I saw him, he trapped me in a corner and told me this god-awful story, far more than I wanted to know about some British murderer back in the 40s. This monstrous man who beat people to death with a hammer, drank their blood, and then disposed of their bodies in a vat of acid in the workroom. He shuddered. That would be John George Haig, Agnes said, checking Barty's diaper before nestling him tenderly in the crook of her arm. The lawyer's eyes appeared as round as his face. Aggie, please don't tell me you started to share Jacob's... enthusiasms. No. No, but being around him so much, inevitably I absorb some details. He's a compelling speaker when the subject interests him. Oh, Vinny agreed. I wasn't bored for a second. I've often thought Jacob would have made a fine school teacher. Assuming the children received therapy after every class. Assuming, of course, that he didn't have these obsessions. Extracting documents from his valise, Vinny said, Well, I have no right to talk. Food is my obsession. Look at me, so fat you think I've been raised from birth for sacrifice. You're not fat, Agnes objected. You're nicely rounded. Yes, I'm nicely rounding myself into an early grave, he said almost cheerfully, and I must admit to enjoying it. You may be eating yourself into an early grave, Vinny, but poor Jacob has murdered his own soul, and that's infinitely worse. Murder his own soul? An interesting turn of phrase. Hope is the food of faith, the staff of life, don't you think? From his mother's cradled arms, Barty gazed adoringly at her. She continued, when we don't allow ourselves a hope, we don't allow ourselves to have purpose. Without purpose, without meaning, life is dark. We have no light within, and we're just living to die. With one tiny hand, Barty reached up for his mother. She gave him her forefinger to which the sugar bag boy clung tenaciously. Regardless of her other successes or failures as a parent, Agnes intended to make certain that Barty never lacked hope, that meaning and purpose flowed through her boy as constantly as blood. I know Edom and Jacob have been a burden, said Vinny. You happen to be responsible for them. 
nothing of the kind, Agnes smiled at Barty and wiggled her finger in his grip. They've always been my salvation. I don't know what I'd do without them. I think you actually mean that. I always mean what I say. Well, as years pass, they're going to be a financial burden, if nothing else, so I'm glad I have a little surprise for you. When she looked up from Barty, she saw the attorney with his hands full of documents. Surprise? I know it's in Joey's will. Vinny smiled. But you have assets you aren't aware of. The house was hers, free and clear of mortgages. There were two savings accounts to which Joey had diligently made deposits weekly through nine years of marriage. Life insurance, Vinny said. I'm aware of that. A $50,000 policy. She figured that she could stay home, devoting herself to Barty for perhaps three years before she'd be wise to find work. In addition to that policy, said Vinny, there's another. He filled his lungs, hesitated, then excelled the air and the sun with the tremor. 750000 Three quarters of a million dollars. Certain disbelief insulated her against immediate surprise. She shook her head. That's not possible. It was affordable term insurance, not a whole life policy. I mean, Joey wouldn't have bought it without... He knew how you felt about having too much life insurance. So he didn't disclose it to you. The rocking chair stopped squeaking under her. She heard the sincerity in Vinny's voice. And as her disbelief dissolved, she was shocked into immobility. She whispered, My little superstition. Under other circumstances, Agnes might have blushed, but now her apparently irrational fear of too much life insurance had been vindicated. Joey, after all, was an insurance broker, Vinny reminded her. He was going to look out for his family. Excessive insurance, Agnes believed, was a temptation of fate. A reasonable policy, yes, that's fine, but a big one? It's like betting on death. Aggie, it's just prudent planning. I believe in betting on life. With this money, you won't have to cut back on the number of pies you'll give away and all of that. By all of that, he meant the groceries that she and Joey often sent along with the pies. The occasional mortgage payment they had made for someone down on his luck. And the other quiet philanthropies. Look at it this way, Aggie. All the pies, all the things you do, that's betting on life. And now you've just been given the great blessing of being able to place larger bets. The same thought had occurred to her. A consolation that might make acceptance to these riches possible. Yet she remained chilled by the thought of receiving a life-changing amount of money as a consequence of a death. Looking down at Barty, Agnes saw the ghost of Joey in the baby's face. And although she half believed that her husband would be alive now if he had never tempted fate by putting such a high price on his life, she couldn't find any anger in her heart for him. She must accept this final generosity with grace, if also without enthusiasm. All right, Agnes said, and as she voiced her acceptance, she was shivered by a sudden fear for which she couldn't at once identify a cause. And there's more, said Vinnie Lincoln, as round as Santa Claus and Cherry Cheek with pleasure of being able to bear these gifts. The policy contained a double indemnity clause in the event of death by accident. The complete tax-free payout is one and a half million. A cause now apparent, the fear explained. Agnes held her baby more tightly. So new to the world, he seemed already to be slipping away from her, captured by the whirlpool of a demanding destiny. The ace of diamonds, four in a row. Ace, 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 ace. Already the future foretold, which she has tried to dismiss as a game with no consequences, was coming true. According to the cards, Barty would be rich financially, but also in talent, spirit, intellect, rich in courage and honor, Maria promised, with the wealth of common sense, good judgment, and luck. He would need the courage and the luck. What's wrong, Aggie? asked Vinny. She couldn't explain her anxiety to him because he believed in the supremacy of laws and the justice that might be delivered in this life in a comparatively simple reality and he would not comprehend the gloriously, frighteningly, reassuringly, strangely, and deeply complex reality Agnes occasionally perceived, usually peripherally, 
sometimes intellectually, but often with their heart. This was a world in which effect could come before cause, and which what seemed to be coincidence was, in fact, merely the visible part of a far larger pattern that couldn't be seen whole. If the ace of diamonds and quartet must be taken seriously, then why not the rest of the draw? If this insurance payoff was not mere coincidence, if it was the wealth that had been foretold, then how far behind the fortune did the knave travel? Years? Months? Days? You look as if you've seen a ghost, said Vinny, and Agnes wished the threat was as simple as a restless spirit, groaning and rattling its chains, like Dickens Marley come to Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas Eve. Chapter 42 the Sandman was powerless to cast a spell asleep while Junior spent the night flushing away enough water to drain the reservoir. By dawn, when the intestinal paroxysm finally passed, this bold new man of adventure felt as flat and limp as roadkill. Finally sleeping, he had anxiety dreams of being in a public restroom, overcome by urgent needs, only to find that every stall was occupied by someone he had killed, all of them vengefully determined to deny him a chance for dignified relief. He woke at noon, eyes gums shut with the affluence of sleep. He felt lousy, but he was in control of himself, and strong enough to fetch a suitcase, which he had been unable to carry upon arrival. Outside, he had determined some worthless criminal wretch had broken into a suburban during the night. The suitcase and book of the month selections were gone. The creep even swiped the Kleenex, the chewing gum, and the breath mints from the glove compartment. Incredibly, the thief left behind the most valuable items the collections of hardcover first editions of Caesar Zed's complete body of work. The box stood open, its contents having been explored in haste, but not a single volume was missing. Fortunately, he had kept neither cash nor his checkbook in the suitcase. With Zed intact, his losses were tolerable. In the motel office, Junior paid for another night in advance. His preferences in lodging didn't run to greasy carpeting, cigarette scarf furniture, and the whisper scuttling of cockroaches in the dark. But though feeling better, he was too tired and shaky to drive. The aging fugitive Nazi had been replaced at the front desk by a woman with messily chopped blonde hair, a brutish face, and arms that would dissuade Charles Atlas from challenging her. She had changed a $5 bill into coins for the vending machines and snarled at him only once and strangely accented English. Junior was starving but he didn't trust his bowels enough to risk dinner at a restaurant. The affliction seemed to have passed, but it might recur when he had food in the system again. He bought cracker sandwiches, some filled with cheese and some with peanut butter, redskin peanuts, chocolate bars, and Coca-Cola. Although this was an unhealthy meal, cheese and peanut butter and chocolate shared a virtue. They were all binding. In his room, he sat on the bed with his constipating snacks in the county telephone book. Because he had packed the directory with the Zed collection, the thief hadn't got it. He had already reviewed 24,000 names, finding no Bartholomew, putting red checks behind entries with the initial B instead of a first name. A slip of yellow paper marked his place. Opening the directory to the marker, he found a card tucked between the pages. A joker with Bartholomew in red block letters. This was not the same card he had found at his bedside, under two dimes and a nickel, on the night following Naomi's funeral. He had torn that one and thrown it away. No mystery here. No reason to leap to the ceiling and cling upside down like a frightened cartoon cat. Evidently, last evening, prior to keeping a dinner date with Victoria, when the taunting detective had illegally entered Junior's house and placed another quarter on the nightstand, he had seen the directory open on the kitchen table. Deducing the meaning of the red check marks, he inserted this card and closed the book, another small assault in the psychological warfare that he had been waging. Junior had made a mistake when he smashed a pewter candlestick in the vanadium's face after the cop was already unconscious. He should have bound the bastard and attempted to revive him for interrogation. Applying enough pain, he could have gotten cooperation even from vanadium. The detective had said he had heard Junior fearfully repeat Bartholomew in his sleep, which Junior believed to be true because the name did resonate with him. However, he wasn't sure he believed the cops claimed to be ignorant of the identity of this nemesis. Too late for interrogation now, with Vanadium bludgeoned into eternal sleep and resting on the many fathoms of cold bedding. But ah, 
the heft of the candlestick, the smooth arc it made, and the crack of contact had been as hugely satisfying as any home run swing that had ever won a baseball World Series. Munching an almond joy, Junior returned to the phone book with no choice but to find Bartholomew the hard way. Chapter 43 Onward through this Monday, January 17th, this momentous day, when the ending of one thing is the beginning of another. Under a sullen afternoon sky in the winter drab hills, the yellow and white station wagon was a bright arrow, drawn and fired not from a hunter's quiver, but from that of a Samaritan. Edom drove, happy to assist Agnes. He was happier still that he didn't have to make the pie deliveries alone. He wasn't required to torture himself in search of pleasant conversation with those they visited. Agnes had virtually invented pleasant conversation. In the pasture seat, Barty was cushioned in his mother's arms. At times, the boy cooed or gurgled, or made a wet chortling sound. As yet, Edom had never heard him cry or even fuss. Barty wore elfin-sized, knitted blue pajamas complete with feet, white rickrack at the cuffs and neckline, and a matching cap. His white blanket was decorated with blue and yellow bunnies. The baby had been an unqualified hit at their first four stops. His bright, smiling presence was a bridge that helped everyone cross over the dark waters of Joey's death. Eden would have judged this a perfect day, except for the earthquake weather. He was convinced that the big one would bring the coastal cities to ruin before twilight. This was different earthquake weather from that of ten days ago, when he had made the pie deliveries alone. Then, blue skies, unseasonable warmth, low humidity. Now, low gray clouds, cool air, high humidity. One of the most unnerving aspects of life in Southern California was that earthquake weather came in so many varieties. As many days as not, you got out of bed, checked the sky on the barometer, and realized with dismay the conditions were indicative of catastrophe. With the earth still tenuously stable beneath them, they arrived at their fifth destination, a new address on Agnes's mercy list. They were in the eastern hills, a mile from Jolene and Bill Clefton's place, where ten days ago, Edom had delivered blueberry pie along with the grisly details of the Tokyo-Yokohama quake of 1923. This house was similar to the Clefton's. Though stucco rather than clapboard, it had gone a long time without fresh paint. A crack in one of the front windows had been sealed with strapping tape. Agnes added this stop to a route at the request of Reverend Tom Collins, the local Baptist minister whose folks unthinkingly gave him the name of a cocktail. She was friendly with all the clergymen in Bright Beach, and her pie deliveries favored no one creed. Edom carried the honey raisin pear pie, and Agnes toted Barty across the neatly cropped yard to the front door. The bell push triggered chimes to play the first ten notes of that old black magic, which they heard distinctly through the glass in the door. This humble house wasn't where you expect to hear an elaborate custom doorbell, or even any doorbell at all, since knuckles on wood were the cheapest announcement of a visitor. Edom glanced at Agnes and said uneasily, Strange. No, charming, she disagreed. There's a meaning to it. Everything has a meaning, dear. An elderly, negro gentleman answered the door. His hair was such a pure white that in contrast to his plum dark skin, it appeared to glow like a nimbus around his head. With his equally ready and goatee, his kindly figures, and his compelling black eyes, he seemed to have stepped out of a movie about a jazz musician who, having died, was on earth once more as somebody's angelic guardian. Mr. Sepharad? Agnes asked. Obadiah Sepharad? Glancing at the plump pie in Edom's hands, the gentleman replied to Agnes in a musical yet gravelly voice worthy of Louis Armstrong. It must be the lady Reverend Collins told me about. The voice reinforced Edom's image of a bebop celestial being. Turning his attention to Barty, Obadiah broke into a smile, revealing a gold upper tooth. Something here is sweeter than that lovely pie. What's the child's name? Bartholomew, said Agnes. Well, of course it is. Edom observed, amazed, as Agnes chatted up their host, going from Mr. Sepharad to Obadiah, from the doorstep to the living room, the pie delivered and accepted. Coffee offered and served, the two of them pleased and easy with one another, all in the time that it would have taken Edom himself to get the nerve up to cross the threshold and to think of something interesting to say about the Galveston hurricane in 1900, in which 6,000 had died. As Obadiah lowered himself into a well-worn armchair, he said to Edom, Son, 
Don't I know you from somewhere? Having settled on the sofa with Agnes and Barty, prepared to serve comfortably in the role of quiet observer, Eden was alarmed to have suddenly become the object of conversation. He was also alarmed to be called son, because in his 36 years, the only person ever to have addressed him in that fashion had been his father, dead for a decade, yet still a terror in Edom's dreams. Shaking his head, his coffee cup rattling against the saucer, Edom said, uh, No, sir, no. I, I don't think we've ever met until now. Maybe. You sure look familiar, though. I've got one of those faces so ordinary you see them everywhere, said Edom, and decided to tell the story of the Tri-State Tornado in 1925. Perhaps his sister intuited what Eden was about to say, because she didn't let him get started. Somehow, Agnes knew that in his younger days, Obadiah had been a stage magician. Artlessly, she drew him out on the subject. Professional magic was not a field in which many Negroes could find their way to success. Obadiah was one of a rare brotherhood. A music tradition was deeply rooted in the Negro community. No similar tradition in magic existed. Maybe because we didn't want to be called witches, said Obadiah with a smile, and give folks one more reason to hang us. A pianist or saxophonist could go a long way on his talent and self-instruction, but a would-be stage magician eventually needed a mentor to reveal the most closely guarded secrets of illusion and to help him master the skills of deception needed for the highest level of prestigitation. In a craft practiced almost exclusively by white men, a young man of color had to search for mentoring, especially in 1922, when 20-year-old Obadiah dreamed of being the next Houdini. Now, Obadiah produced a pack of playing cards, though from a secret pocket in an invisible coat. Like to see a little something? Yes, please, Agnes said with evident delight. Obadiah tossed a pack of cards to eat him, startling him. Son, you'll have to help me. My fingers have no finesse anymore. He raised his gnarled hands. Edom had noticed him earlier. Now he saw they were in worse condition than he had thought. In large knuckles, fingers not entirely at natural angles to one another. Perhaps Obadiah had rheumatoid arthritis like Bill Clefton, though a less crippling case. Please take the cards from the pack and put them on the coffee table in front of you, Obadiah directed. Edom did his ass. Then he cut the deck into two approximately equal stacks when requested to do so. Give them one shuffle, the magician instructed. Edom shuffled. Leaning forward from his armchair, white hairs radiant as the wings of cherubim, Obadiah waved one misshapen hand over the deck, never closer than ten inches to the cards. Now please spread them out in the fan on the table, face down. Edom complied, and in the arc of red bicycle patterns, one card revealed too much white corner, because it was the only one face up. You might want to have a look, Obadiah suggested. Teasing out the card, Edom saw it was an ace of diamonds, remarkable in light of Maria Gonzalez's fortune-telling session last Friday evening. He was more astonished, however, by the name printed in black ink diagonally across the face of the card, Bartholomew. Agnes's sharp intake of breath caused Eden to look up from his nephew's name. Pale she was, her eyes as haunted as old mansions. Chapter 44 with Bright Beach under assault by one miserable flu and by an uncountable variety of common colds, business was brisk this Monday at Damascus Pharmacy. The customers were in a mood, most of them grumbling about their ailments. Others complained about the dreary weather, the increasing number of kids zooming along sidewalks on those damn new skateboards, the recent tax increases, and the New York Jets paying Joe Namath the kingly sum of 427000 a year to play football which some saw as a sign that the country was money-crazy and going to hell. Paul Damascus remained busy, filling prescriptions, until he was finally able to take a lunch break at 2.30. He usually ate lunch alone in his office. The room was the size of an elevator, but of course didn't go up or down. It went sideways, however, in the sense that herein, Paul was transported into wondrous lands of adventure. A floor-to-ceiling bookshelf was crammed with pulp magazines that had been published throughout the 1920s, 30s and 40s, before paperback books supplanted them. The All Story, Mammoth Adventure, Nick Western, The Black Mask, Detective Fiction Weekly, Spicy Mystery, Weird Tales, Amazing Stories, Astounding Stories, The Shadow, Doc Savage, G8 and His Battle Aces, Mysterious Wu Fang. This was only a fraction of Paul's collection. Thousands of additional issues filled rooms at home.
The magazine covers were colorful, lurid, full of violence and eeriness and the coy sexual suggestiveness of a more innocent time. Most days, he read a story while eating the two pieces of fruit that were his lunch. But sometimes, he lost himself in a particularly vivid illustration, daydreaming about far places and great adventure. Indeed, even the distinct fragrance of pulp paper, yellow with age, was alone sufficient to start him fantasizing. With his startling combination of a Mediterranean complexion and rust-red hair, his good looks, and his fit physique, Paul had the exotic appearance of a pulp fiction hero. In particular, he liked to imagine that he might pass for Doc Savage's brother. Doc was one of his favorites. Crime fighter extraordinaire, the man of bronze. This Monday afternoon, he longed for the escape and solace of a half-hour pulp adventure. But he decided that he ought to at last compose the letter that he had been meaning to write for at least ten days. After using a paring knife to section and core an apple, Paul withdrew a sheet of stationery from his desk and uncapped a fountain pen. His penmanship was old-fashioned in its neatness, as precise and appealing as fine calligraphy. He wrote, Dear Reverend White. He paused, not sure how to proceed. He was not accustomed to writing letters to total strangers. Finally, he began, Greetings on this momentous day. I'm writing to tell you about an exceptional woman, Agnes Lampion, whose life you have touched without knowing, and whose story may interest you. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, Lee Review on Spotify, Lee Review on Podchaser, copy and paste that in Apple Podcasts, copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. There's a tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.